The Super Bowl is set as the Philadelphia Eagles will take on the Kansas City Chiefs for the title. Pro Football Network's Arif Hassan sits down with us to discuss the AFC and NFC Championship games, the blueprint for reaching the Super Bowl, and where the Seahawks fit. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my delinquent producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Feeling good, Jackson. The Super Bowl is set. The championship games were both wildly entertaining. So yeah, oh, for a couple great. different so, reasons, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, exactly. I mean, honestly, as far as the championship games go, I mean, we got one snoozer and one all-timer. Where'd you watch these games, and what were you thinking as you watched them unfold? First one, I watched uh, Niners Eagles at home. It was a little, uh, it was an hors d'oeuvre, if you will. Yeah, and uh, it was delicious. Let me tell mm-hmm. you. I mean, you never mm-hmm. look. We were we were excited for a couple of. Awesome matchups, and uh, the later game definitely lived up to the hype. You got uh, Burrow v. Mahomes round two. I was watching that at a, a friend's place surrounded by Burrow lovers, Burrow lusters, all the above, and love me some Joe Shiesty, but uh, I was rooting for Pat. I was rooting for Pat on Sunday, and he came through in the end. Amazing game, lived up to the hype, uh, every ounce of hype that we could have heaped upon it. But uh, first game, fortunately, the Niners lost a quarterback, lost another quarterback after they had lost a quarterback and lost another quarterback earlier in the season. It just seems like they keep losing quarterbacks or losing impact players or no matter how well they're coached, no matter how good their roster is, they will find a way to lose the biggest game in the most devastating fashion possible. And for that, I am grateful. Yeah. And and it just kind of highlights just once you get to the final four, how razor thin the margins are. Uh, to keep winning and you know I mean I think the 49ers have done as good a job as anyone over the last half decade when it comes to putting teams together but man they just haven't been able to get over the hump you know I I uh, had the opportunity to go up to Canada and spend some time with my 98 year old grandma and uh, hung out with her all day Sunday so we watched some ball together and it was awesome uh, watching the game, the first game, obviously, you know, cheering for the Eagles one, just because the Eagles are eminently likable Two, because it's the 49ers want to see them lose if possible. Um, and then uh, we end up getting home, my wife and I just in time for the second half of the second game. And that was, I mean, that was like peak football for me. That was, it felt like every play was the most important play of the entire NFL season. And, and that's what you want from, from a championship game. And, you know, we're blessed to be joined today by one of my favorite voices on the NFL. He checks the consensus box as a Vikings fan, but everyone who knows, knows that he's slinking around the Seahawks nightclubs under a fake name. He writes effervescently for pro football network. He is Arif Hassan Arif. We had you on to break down Seattle's draft class last spring, and we're stoked to have you on today. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I knew I'd have to take the, uh, I mean, you're good with words. I don't know, the slings and arrows of the accusations <laughs> that I would be a Seahawks fan. Um, so I knew that that was an inevitability of this appearance, but I'll take it because I do enjoy the company. <laughs> 
Well, uh, all right, man. We'll we'll try not to blow your cover any more than we already have. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, Arif is really one of the great voices out there when it comes to talking about the NFL. Anyone who listened to our episode with him breaking down the Seahawks draft class uh, in May knows how deeply he understands, respects, and knows the game of football, especially at the NFL level. And we're stoked to have him here to talk about the Super Bowl, the AFC NFC Championship games, and also just where his favorite team, the Seahawks, kind of fit in in terms of closing the gap between where they're at and uh, and and these final four teams. I want to jump right into this NFC Championship game. You know, as a Seahawks fan, I am firmly fuck the 49ers, but. As a football fan, I was absolutely thrilled with these final four teams, and I thought Philly versus San Francisco had game of the year potential. Obviously, the injuries to Brock Purdy and then to fourth stringer Josh Johnson took all the competitiveness out of that matchup. But the way the Eagles played, I think they probably would have won that game anyway. But Arif, what were your takeaways from watching that NFC Championship game? Yeah, I think that there's like some things that you can take a look at from just the the matchups that were relatively i mean all the matchups are affected but relatively unaffected by you know all of the problems that occurred on offense as a result of those injuries it really took all the energy out of the game and i think you just take a look at how the eagles offense did against the 49ers defense i mean the 49ers are inefficient offense they do score points but i think everyone agrees that they're a defense-led team and if that defense isn't holding up it's really difficult for the 49ers to put themselves in a position when everybody is healthy to you know push downfield score points in a quick fashion and that defense wasn't holding up, right? And I think that the issue was, and this is kind of the, the question I had about the 49ers defense heading into the matchup, was they're not great against quarterback runs. They're good against everything else. You know, they're, they're the number one team in the league by any measure um, against the run. But that doesn't include games where, you know, you've got quarterbacks who are able and willing runners. And, you know, it seems like in those situations, they actually did a pretty poor job. And that showed up again. Um, I remember before the game, actually, you know, Fred Warner was asked, hey, you know, PFF says you're 19th in the NFL against uh, against RPOs. And, you know, as any as any player would, you know, he dismissed it. He was like, well, that's just PFF. And well, I, well. <laughs> 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 so, uh, you know, I, I think that the the issue is that the Eagles have put together the team. I think the Ravens envisioned themselves putting together when they drafted mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson. They've got a diverse, multi-capable offense that has the ability to beat you with a traditional running game, with the quarterback-centric running game, with a deep passing game, with an intermediate passing game, and even occasionally a short passing game. They've got a multiple, a multiple ways to exploit matchups, uh, a great variety of mechanisms by which they can exploit holes in defenses, and it, that's the problem with being a defense. You have to be perfect every single time. The offense only has to be right three, four times a game. Uh, and 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 the Eagles have constructed a roster that has the ability to be right every single play. And and that's kind of what took apart that 49ers defense. And, you know, I'm always happy that my takes are correct. You know, I always cheer for my takes above anything else. And and here, you know, I, I it bore out. Right. So I was pretty happy about that. But I was really upset that I couldn't see another opportunity for my takes to be correct when it came to Brock Purdy. Um, yeah. First, you know, I I don't know the guy. He's probably nice that it, it sucks that he got hurt. Um, and it sucks that he got hurt in a way that might impact his ability to play football for the rest of his career. Maybe, right? Yeah. Like that's brutal. Like as here's as Tom Brady retires, 
we have the potential story of a guy in his first year as a starter, a late round pick, derided for not having many physical tools at all, playing the game in a smart, efficient manner, relying, of course, on the help of a great defense and his great teammates, uh, potentially heralding in a new era, despite the fact that there was a potential pro bowler on the roster ahead of him. That's that is the Tom Brady story, right? As he retires. It totally is. As he retires, uh, Brock Purdy has the ability to to recreate that story. And it would really suck if an injury took that away. Just from from a from an NFL perspective. I know that, you know, Seahawks fans maybe don't want a Tom Brady to emerge in San Francisco. Um, but that that would have been nice. But the thing is, my take is that he's a bad quarterback. Uh, and so it would have been, it would have also been nice if he had been healthy the whole game and proved me right. I think his healthy would have been good for a lot of reasons, um, uh, for the obvious and, and selfish. Right. Um, so, uh, it, it would have been nice to see more of that. I, I don't know that that 49ers offense would have been able to keep up with the Eagles offense, but it just, it really stings that we don't have an opportunity to really see that because that game. Was I mean, if you didn't have a vested interest in seeing the Eagles win or the 49ers lose, that game sucked. It really, yeah, it really did not have a lot of life or energy. And it would have been, it would have been so cool because Josh Johnson, I am confident, is a good person, right? And Josh Johnson has been around the league forever. He knows every offense. It would have been so cool for him to be the best quarterback of the four that started, right? <laughs> for this year for, for the 49ers. Um, and Again, my take is that that would not have been extremely hard, but um, I, I, it would have been so cool to see Shanahan's offense just get more powerful every single time they have they're forced right. to start a new quarterback. I mean, that would have been it would have been such a great culmination on the Shanahan coaching story, which is now turning more into a story of you know potential unfulfilled than it is of the brilliance that that he genuinely has. Uh, and so, yeah, it, 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 yeah, that game, it was such a, it lets the air out, right? It's, it's, it's such a letdown. Um, and, uh, and it's unavoidable. I mean, what are you going to do? Ask Hassan Reddick to go a little bit softer? Like, right, <laughs> right. Well, and that, that brings up a good point. I mean, you know, I, I was cheering for chaos for the 49ers in the off season. And, and that's what I got. Uh, we had Davis Sue on with our last episode and, we spent some time breaking down, um, you know, the Seahawks cap situation. And then he and I have been texting extensively since he said, you know, that that podcast episode really got me digging into the 49ers situation. He's been sending me his breakdowns of where they're at and man, they're, they're kind of up against it. Like I'm not saying they're not going to be competitive next year. I think they will. There's too much talent, but they're facing a ton of turnover and some massive cap decisions and Brock Purdy being the guy provides a lot of margin for error, right? You can get a guy who's literally the last pick in the draft. Nobody in the NFL is making less money than him. If you can get a starting quarterback out of that, like quite literally (laughs) nobody in the NFL is making less than Mr. Irrelevant as a rookie. And, and it would have freed up, you know, if he was the guy would have freed up so much capital to, extend Joey Bosa, you know, Trent Williams is seeing a $10 million raise this year. Uh, it's like most of their non elite starters are free agents this year. They they've got a lot kind of facing them. And, you know, I got my wish that it is going to be total chaos for them this off season. Um, 
I just saw today that it does look like Brock Purdy is probably going to opt for the Tommy John, which puts him out for a year. And unfortunately, just from a human interest standpoint, it is a bummer. Uh, it would have been cool to see him just kind of follow through on his what seven to no start as, as a starter. And there's, there's nothing more American underdog than the last pick of the draft leading his team to the Super Bowl. All of that being said, I think even if he stayed healthy, I think the Eagles were going to thump him in this game. And, and I point to that first drive that the Eagles had, you know, they got a, a good stop on defense. 49ers started with the ball. They got a first down and then punted away. And the Eagles took it right to them. They went for it on fourth and three from the middle of the field, took a deep shot. Uh, Devonte Smith made that great catch. Sort but of. then on the touchdown run, I think it was a catch, but whatever, whatever. Okay, I, 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 just, I get, maybe they should have challenged it. I, I just, just real quick, just to get a super quick yeah. take out there. Most errors of the NFL would have considered that a catch. We just have access to an extraordinarily quick replay system with a bunch of different angles that we didn't have access to before. I, most of the time that would be a catch. That's, that's my take. All right. All right. Let's, but let, I, but factually, since, I don't think it's a the, catch and I don't think that, the, that matters that much. Sure. Since we're on the subject, <laughs> Nothing is a catch in the modern NFL with all of the cameras and the fucking Zapruder film frame by frame breakdown. The ball always moves when it hits the ground. Every single catch in the history of football where the receiver has gone to the ground, the ball moves a little bit in their grip. Let's, it's let's called do physics. This. I think we it's should, gravity. I think we should have as many angles as possible by which to evaluate replay, but we should not have slow motion replay. We should just get rid of it. I would, oh, I love this. That I is, love that's this. my take. I, I think. No, I'm, I'm into it. Okay, perfect. You guys are actually going to love this because the next segment of this podcast is us throwing tomatoes at Dean Blandino. <laughs> oh, uh, with, with his statement on the whole. Okay, we'll do that when we do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, like, here's the thing. Like, football is football, man. There's holding on every play. There's pass interference on every play. Every freaking continuation of a catch is not really a catch. Like, you can legislate every single vibe out of the game of football. If that's what you choose to do, that should not be the spirit of replay. If a guy makes a cool play and it's not obvious that he dropped it, it's a fucking catch is my take. Yeah, no, I I think that's fine. I think the thing is most of like rule changes that I would like to propose would recenter the importance of defense. Right. But, and, and this rule in particular would help the offense, but I'm fine with it, whatever, man, because like the whole point of of the NFL making offense better and better is to make a more watchable or entertaining product, which, you mm-hmm. know, at, at, at some point it's kind of like, you know, forcing us to hit a dopamine button and now our tolerance is risen and now we have to hit it again and again and again. Like, yeah. like watching like 2001 football, which I did for a Tom Brady piece I just wrote, um, be boring today. It just would be like some of the best teams would be boring. Um, and, and it sucks because we've conditioned ourselves to, to more high and higher octane football. Um, but I, w- I would like to return to an era where defense matters just a little bit more. I'm not like a football guy, defense first, whatever, but I would just like it to matter a little bit more. Um, and I, I think that's impossible. But like the point of making all of this stuff, um, you know, more offensively oriented is to make football more watchable. And this legislating every micro step was the toe here, was the finger there, was your was was your fingernail under the ball between the ball and the ground. That's not fun. That's not like I would rather relegate exactly. that to faint like 
what was better for the NFL than the controversy of the immaculate reception? Impossible to determine who that ball hit, right? Um, Rip Franco Harris. But that that like ruled, yep. right? Like we don't we didn't totally. need to resolve that on the field. Have the game play out, and then and then have was it Raiders fans? Raiders fans be mad about it for eternity. Great. I as mm-hmm. as somebody who covers a team or covered a team that has never won a Super Bowl, full of just a fan base full of mad conspiracy nuts, and fairly so. That's good for the game of football. <laughs> well, and and totally, and it's like we're not. We're not tuning in for eight minute long replays. Yeah. I, you know it, what I mean? It like sucks that if you can't tell in 30 years. Yes, exactly. If you can't tell in 30 seconds, then call on the field stands. That's that is how I would like to see it happen. You got 30 seconds. I mean, everyone listening, you know what it's like. You watch it. You see two review angles and you know whether it was a catch, whether it was a first down, whether it was whatever. And you can tell there is no reason to just drag this on and suck all the life out of the game. But the the larger point that I wanted to make regarding the Eagles is right after that play, they ran an inside draw to Miles Sanders for the game's opening touchdown. And on that play, the 49ers defense, which has been the best defense in the NFL this year, and I would say by a decent margin, got blown off the ball so goddamn far. <laughs> like, <laughs> Poor Javon I mean, Kidlaw, but, man. Oh, my God. I know. I know. And, and this is not a swipe at the 49ers who I think have done an immaculate job of building their roster. It's that the Eagles are that good and they were that much better than the 49ers. And there is built in excuses for 49ers fans that I would cling to if it was the Seahawks in that situation. And Geno Smith went down and then drew Locke went down and they're running a wildcat with Kenneth Walker. Like I get it. I, I could just chalk it up to that. And and that's fine. I'm not trying to take that away from them. I think the Eagles win that by 14 points, even if Purdy stays healthy that whole game. I don't know about 14, but yeah, I do think they went comfortably for sure. Um, again, I mean, the 49ers just schematically didn't have an answer to what the Eagles did because their defense was built to stop, you know, 28 other teams in the NFL, right? And it turns mm-hmm. out, you know, one of those four teams that they're not built to stop, they played in the NFC Championship game, right? Like, I think this would have happened against a Ravens with a healthy Lamar Jackson. Um, and sure. And like we did see it, right? We saw like they lost to the Justin Fields Bears, right? Like we did see it. Mm-hmm. Like I, that did not, the, like of all the quarterbacks who have run more than twenty percent of their plays, you know they faced two of them in the regular season, lost to both of them, Marcus Mariota, Justin Fields. And then they lost to Jalen. That doesn't sound like an accident to me, right? Um, it's know, a great point. You know, like it, it's that Bears team is not good. Right? <laughs> that Falcons team is not good. You mean you mean the team that's drafting number one overall? <laughs> they're not good teams right um and and uh and it just happened to be you know where the 49ers just didn't and in fairness to the 49ers in this kind of analysis they were a much better defense in the second half of the season coincidentally when when they uh started brock purdy and acquired christian mccaffrey it just came together at the same time yep. um but they were a much better defense in the second half of the season because the cowboys were the best team uh, on defense for the first half of the season that's just kind of sometimes how these things go it's hard to be the best defense throughout the entire season it's Probably the only reason we're not considering the 49ers among um, history's best defenses, because those defenses, we were considering that three, four games in the season, including, you know, the the 2013 Seahawks. Right. Um, So like the 85 Bears, you know, they they all had that in their 
uh, narrative early on, right? And and the 49ers statistically get kind of close to some of them if you adjust for error and stuff like that. But it, it, it doesn't work out because of how late coming that defense was. And, and, and that complicates our analysis of their ability to beat these kind of teams. But I, I do think that the Eagles had the tools to just... And honestly, if the 49ers happened to be weak to, to statue quarterbacks in a league full of running quarterbacks, the Eagles would have won then too because they have every answer available to them um in the test prep book like it's it's they it's, really do it's it's crazy it's such a well-constructed team that knows and this is why like shane steichen um deserves all of these interviews because yeah it's one thing to have you know a talent like jalen hurts which he does deserve some credit for helping develop it's one thing to have a talent like aj brown and a devonta smith and and to have an offensive line that run blocks as well as it does it's another thing to design an offense that has the ability to use all of them at will because typically i mean greg roman is not good at designing a passing offense right and he's considered right. a pretty decent offensive coordinator um for what he's done with lamar jackson it's hard to do like Brian Daybold kind of did it with the Giants, and that's fantastic. Or Mike Kafka, really. And that's, like, fantastic. Like, that's – it's rare to be able to do that. I mean, like, arguably the Cowboys have that, right? I mean, people don't really want to run Dak Prescott that much, but he can. He absolutely can. Mm-hmm. He kind of did it in college. So, um, you know, and, and Kellen Moore just got fired, right? Which, you know, that's that's more about Mike McCarthy's judgment than anything else, but – he what he didn't make it hard for for him to be fired, and they have all those tools, right? They couldn't build that offense, so um, you know the coaching advantage I would say was for the 49ers, but it wasn't by a significant amount. Steichen did a phenomenal job, and that defense was really it didn't it, it, they weren't called uh, you know to to the ring as it were just because of all those injuries, yeah. but um, you know that defense was 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 built to handle kind of everything the 49ers would do because the the Eagles. They 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 lived in that yards after catch game that the 49ers wanted. It was strength against strength because the Eagles uh, forced the fewest deep passes in the NFL or allowed the fewest. They forced as many short passes as a percentage. Uh, and coincidentally, they also had the number one passing defense in the NFL. So they knew yep. how to deal with yak-oriented defenses because they invited that and stopped them. Um, you know, the great linebacking core was able to do that. Good cornerback group. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I, I do think that the Eagles were going to win somewhat comfortably. Yeah, and, and I'm glad that the conversation pivoted that way because as much as we can talk about what the 49ers didn't do, the Eagles with a healthy Jalen Hurts have been the best team in the NFL this season. Uh, I think they're 15-1 and one now with uh, Jalen Hurts' star- starter. 16-1 maybe? And maybe, but yeah. May- maybe 16-1 and one now, and and they've done it, you know, beating really good teams along the way. You know, obviously being the 49ers, being the Cowboys, being the Giants three times. Um you know, the, they are thumping the Vikings like this. This is a very, very good team and they've stayed healthy enough. They they were so good, fully healthy that they were able to weather the loss of their all pro quarterback and still get the number one seed. And and, you know, it, it just speaks to how beautifully they've built that team. And, you know, there's there's a reason they've opened as the favorites in the Super Bowl. And we'll get to that in in a little bit. But. Um, I was just so impressed by how they came out. You know, I was uh, texting with Shiel Kapadia before the game. We were talking about, you know, whether, you know, what, what the chances the Eagles had of winning the game. And initially I said, if they played this game a hundred times, I think the Eagles win 53 of those times. And then as I thought about it more, I, I told him, I think it's probably more like 58 or 60. I just, 
to me, what it came down to is I, I thought there was a coaching advantage for the 49ers, but that it was smaller than the quarterback advantage that the Eagles had. Yeah. And ultimately, once it's time, it, it really comes down to the quarterbacks. And and the gap between Jalen Hurts and Brock Purdy is just bigger than the gap between Kyle Shanahan and his staff and Nick Sirianni and his staff. And, you know, I think the rest of the teams are pretty similar in terms of what they do well, running the ball, passing the ball, the way they defend. Um, both teams are amazing in the trenches. It just, I mean, the, the Eagles dominated up front is what it came down to. I mean, what Jalen Hurts passed for like 164 yards. I think Devontae Smith led all receivers in that game with like 40 yards. It was just who's tougher up front. And yes, yes, yes. I mean, the 49ers played most of that game literally without a quarterback. I totally get that. I just don't think it was going to matter in the end. I I think the Eagles were destined to be in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a credit to the way the Eagles built that team. Um, it, it, it's tough to get away from kind of how they've done such a great job bringing in young players, bringing them along, as well as, uh, you know, keeping the veterans that they needed to keep. I mean, you can't tell me that like Jason Kelsey wasn't as critical to the run. Right. As like yep. Lane Johnson or, um, you know, A.J. Brown. Right. I mean, it, it, like having this group of people acquired in every manner possible, whether it's through a draft or a veteran free agent signing or through a trade, um, you know, you draft and develop or draft and start right away. You know, they, they were able to get a lot of people. They had, they had starters that they grabbed off of the waiver wire that, you know, absolutely deserved to, to start for them. That was, that were playing well enough. I mean, they acquired players every way you could acquire players and found ways to make those players really succeed. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, some of that is, you know, not everybody has the capability to, you know, quote unquote, design your scheme around your players, because sometimes, you know, player skill sets are so discordant that you can't build a scheme around both of them and you have to make some sacrifices somewhere. And so they, they were very particular about the players that they grabbed to be able to fit, you know, the schemes that they wanted to run on defense, but ultimately they were a very adaptable, versatile defense. I mean, you can't, you can't look anywhere else besides you know CJ Gardner Johnson and see the roles that he was asked to fill and fill admirably. I mean, the guy finished the year having played only 12 of 17 games and tied for the league lead in interceptions. I mean, that playing two different positions, right? He played the slot corner and the safety position. I mean, he did a, a, a frankly phenomenal job. And I, I think that it's, it's tough to get around how well constructed that roster was, how well deployed the coaching was, uh, in, in how much, you know, the development of a player like Jalen Hurts meant to be able to put them into a position where, where they're now the favorites against the greatest quarterback I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it really is amazing how they've, how they've done it and, and the moves that they made, I mean, to bring in some of their best players, they, they took the shot on Jalen Hurts when they had Carson Wentz and were bold enough to move on from Wentz, who was an MVP candidate a couple years ago and had them primed for the Super Bowl. And of course, they ended up winning it with Nick Foles. Um, but, you know, it, and then to make the move for A.J. Brown, to add him to a team that could not pass the year before. And, you know, when we had Greg Rosenthal on the show, we talked a lot about the value of wide receivers when it comes to making the Super Bowl. If you go back and you look at the teams that have made the Super Bowl for the last 10 years, we talk about, oh, you know, is the quarterback on a rookie contract? How good was the defense? What we don't talk about is who are the wide receivers on that team? And 
every Super Bowl team for like the last 10 years has had great wide receivers. And the Eagles recognized that and they went out, they drafted Devontae Smith high. They made the big trade for AJ Brown, gave him a hundred million dollars. And, and it left them in a situation where, as you pointed out, they can win any way they have to. Um, they're a team where if they get up by a couple of scores, they can just grind the clock out because they're so good at running the football. But if they're down by a couple of scores, they're not out of it either. And it's really, really rare to have a team like that. And uh, yeah, I, what it comes down to is they just deserve to be in the Super Bowl. Yeah, no. Um, and, and I think that um, the, the Eagles have, I think, more than most been very introspective about taking a look at what has historically won and finding ways to either replicate it or imitate it, right? Um, and so, you know, and Howie Roseman's been very open about his process of bringing players in and evaluating his roster and taking a look at what a roster needs and the dialogue that he has with his coaching staff in order to kind of get that done. But uh, back in, in, in 2017, when they were, you know, when they won the Super Bowl with Nick Foles, you know, they talked about the process by which to acquire players and, and, and how teams win. And they said, hey, we took a look at the rosters. We took a look at the rosters of the teams that were most successful over the past 10 years. And we found these commonalities. And so we aggressively attacked those commonalities and then designed um, an offense and a defense around them. And every team looks at the Super Bowl winner and tries to grab the elements that, that works, right? Mm -hmm. Every team does that. But I don't think any team is as focused and maniacal about doing deep studies on what wins in the NFL and finding ways to make sure that that works for them. And again, sometimes it's not replication. Like, you know, grabbing A.J. Brown, that's a form of, you know, making an expensive move to replicate a process that's worked for a lot of teams. Sometimes it's imitation. Sometimes you see teams with a good running game, right? But that doesn't mean getting a high-tier running back. That means finding a way to make a running game work, whether that's convincing Jason Kelsey to stay on a little bit longer and then drafting his replacement with his blessing. Well, I've never seen that before, by the way. Um, he picked the guy. Um, but, um, you know, and, and knowing that you can create a running game without an elite running back that's going to be the best running game in the NFL. And so sometimes it was, hey, we've seen this commonality among teams. How do we replicate it? And sometimes it's we've seen this commonality among teams. How do we imitate it? How do we get there through another path? And I think it's both this combination of really critically evaluating what actually helps those teams win over the past decade and evaluating what's within the realm of possibility for them to be able to arrive at some of the same solutions. Yeah. The, the brilliance is in the simplicity of it, right? Like you've, you've got all of this data that you can lean on and, and, and it's setting aside the pride of saying, this is how we're going to play football and saying, how, how have winning teams recently in the last 10 years done it? And, and by winning, I mean, make it to the final four. And that, that is what I think the goal is. Obviously the goal is to win a Super Bowl. I think once you've made it to the championship game of your conference, it's, you got to win back-to-back -back coin flips to win the Super Bowl is what it comes down to. And, and so what can you do to make that final four? And I, and I truly do think we saw the four best teams in the NFL. And so I want to pivot to the game that still has everyone talking chiefs and Bengals. And I've said this before on this show and in my articles, I am a football fan first, a Seahawks fan second, and that's no knock on my feelings for Seattle. They've been endlessly interesting and mostly very good over the last decade. But my point in saying that is, even if I didn't have a natural home team, I would be a big NFL fan. I'm also a degenerate gambler that had real money on the Chiefs, 
And I'm a husband of a wife who turns into a puddle every time Joe Burrow is on the screen. So I, I bring this up because as I watched that game, I found myself pacing around the room like a madman. And, you know, like I remember saying to Paulina, I, I miss having a team in this situation, but I also really don't miss having mm-hmm. a team in this situation. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, totally. Because oh my God. it's just like, even as, as a somewhat disconnected viewer of that game, I was still just every single play in the second half felt like it carried the weight of the world with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that game had everything. I think, you know, there's, there's a ton of focus that's going to be on that late hit. And we're going to talk about that. I'm sure. But, but from a pure football standpoint, that game was everything to me. So Arif, tell me about your experience watching that game, what you took away from it when it was over. Yeah, I think um, it's it's hard to do better than describe it that you, that you did like at the beginning of this podcast. It felt like every play mattered, right? And and the, the season was on the line with every successive throw and run, um, yes. which is exactly what you want out of a game like this, right? Uh, part of the reason that the conference championship games sometimes have a lot more... Uh, vigor and excitement about them. They're be- much better games than the Super Bowls because that feeling is is absent from a lot of Super Bowls for whatever reason, right? I mean, I don't sure. know that there's like a, a strong running reason behind all of that, but um, this game is, is, is was perfectly emblematic of all of that because not only was it a close game, it was a close game for, you know, reasons that you want a game to be close. The quarterbacks were playing well, but so were the defenses. The game plans were designed around the types of offenses that both teams were going to be running, right? They, they knew exactly like, hey, the Bengals knew, you know, Travis Kelsey is going to be doing this. He's going to be the focal point of the offense. And, you know, if Marquez Valdez-Scantling ends up getting 100 yards on us, it's better than if Travis Kelsey gets 150. So we'll see what we can do to prevent that from, and they did, right? I mean, obviously, Kelsey is an elite tight end, one of the greatest tight ends of all time. He found a way to make an impact. There's no question about that. But, you know, the defense was designed in ways that I thought were, were really brilliant from the, from the Bengals' perspective. And then I think the Bengals... You know, their offense, not to say that the Chiefs didn't suffer from a number of injury problems. They certainly did, especially among that receiving core, right? But the Bengals were really just a a quest to overcome all of the problems that had kind of they encountered along the way. I mean, it is difficult to find a Super Bowl favorite walk into that game with as big a chip on their shoulder as the Bengals seem to have had. while also proclaiming themselves favorites in the in the in the away team yeah. stadium, um, yeah. <laughs> but like you get where it's coming from. It annoyed me because I'm not really all that invested in the Bengals' success, but I think anybody remotely invested in Cincinnati absolutely could could you know play along with all of this kind of discontent and you know perceived disrespect and and this feeling of being an underdog, despite again kind of being favorites in most of their games. Uh, well, sure. I mean, with, with the chiefs, you, you have the NFL's wet dream with Pat Mahomes and Patrick Mahomes is the guy He's he's the perfect standard bearer for a sport. You know, he's, he, everything that he does off the field is exactly what you want from the most famous player in the league. But the things that he does on the field, it's just, it's like watching Steph Curry, just, just changing how the game is played. It is. It's magic. It's magic. And, you know, there have been strong cases to be made for other quarterbacks challenging Pat Mahomes as the king of the quarterback landscape. Josh Allen 
has been statistically the best quarterback in the NFL the last few years. Jalen Hurts had an incredible year. What Joe Burrow has done is incredible and has, you know, the Bengals had beat the Chiefs the last three times that they had played. And, you know, there was a lot of that. Then you get Patrick Mahomes out there on one leg with all his receivers hurt and just out there doing it. Like just fucking doing it, man. His his touchdown pass to MVS. I mean, that's it. That's how you win. That That's how you fucking win when the chips are down and everybody is playing at the top of their game, which let's be fair. Everyone was playing at the top of their game in that matchup. And you just, you need your, Mike has heard me say it a bunch of times. Sometimes you just need your champion to go out there and win a game for you. And that's what Mahomes did. Yeah. This is so I, when I wrote about this game, um, I concluded by saying that like the point of any NFL defense is to create problems for the offense and create as many problems as possible for the offense as often as possible to prevent them from doing what they want to do. Uh, the issue is that there is not a problem that Patrick Mahomes can't seem to solve. And I think that that's, that is the fundamental reason that, that he is, um, I think I'm not going to say unquestionably, but I think um, by a fair distance, the best quarterback in the NFL and perhaps the best quarterback you know, that anybody who's, who's watched a ton of great quarterbacks has seen. Like, I, I remember Tom Brady 2007. I watched Aaron Rodgers 2011. I remember Peyton Manning 2004, right? These are unquestionably some of the best seasons that we've ever seen, right, in the NFL. And to me, you know, I, I haven't, I didn't watch Johnny Unitas live or anything like that. But to me, Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback I've ever seen play. And it's because of specifically mm-hmm. that. We can talk about a skill set. And of course, you know, that's a big part of it, right? He's got ridiculous arm strength. He's got the ability to throw off platform to a degree that I have never seen before. He's got unerring accuracy to every part of the field from every part of the field. Um, he's got the ability to do all of those things. But to me, the thing that stands out is his remarkable awareness of everything at all times. He knows where every defender on every blade of grass is. He knows where every offensive player is on every blade of grass, whether or not they're behind him, in front of him, whether or not his view is obscured. He knows exactly where everybody is and, importantly, where they're going to be in a tenth of a second from now. Not only does he have all of that, he knows the down and distance, and he knows the clock. It is incredible the amount that he just innately has stored in his brain and is processing as he is playing. His sense of spatial awareness is unlike that of any other player in the NFL because there is another player with the same physical skill set as Patrick Mahomes. It's Kyler Murray. They are not close. They are not yep. close as quarterbacks. Uh, and uh, and it is it is wild to see how much that kind of matters, but it gives Mahomes that ability to, to be the supreme problem solver, right? And to create all of this magic. I mean, we saw Brock Purdy tried to do that against the Dallas Cowboys. He nearly got intercepted twice doing it, right? Um, or or sacked for 20 yards, right? Um, it is it is difficult to fully explain the monumental task that Mahomes gives himself every single play and executes 80% of the time. It's incredible. And so... Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're talking about a team that moved on from one of the guys that's on the short list for best wide receiver on the planet in Tyreek Hill. And Patrick Mahomes is in the Super Bowl and he's going to win MVP. Like with his <laughs> best statistical I mean? I mean, season since 2018, by the way, losing yeah, Tyreek Hill yeah. has his best statistical season since 2018. And, and a lot of that credit does go to Andy Reed and Eric B for sure. I mean, this is, 
I'm I'm not the type to penalize great players for having a great scenario, right? Uh, you know, Joe Montana is still Joe Montana, full stop. He also had Bill Walsh, who was 10 years ahead of the rest of the NFL when it came to designing offenses. He had Jerry Rice. Um, that said, there have been lots of quarterbacks who have had great situations and not done what Patrick Mahomes is doing. And, and you know, I agree with you. He's the best quarterback that I've ever seen. There is a difference in my mind in the conversations between best and greatest. He's going to have to win a bunch more Super Bowls to enter into the conversation of greatest. That's just how it is. What Tom Brady accomplished in his career, it seems unassailable. But there's one person alive who has like a legit shot at mm-hmm. taking on that legacy, and it is Patrick Mahomes. And and he just he just did it. I mean, he couldn't move the way that he's accustomed to moving. He didn't have receivers to throw to that he's used to throwing to. I mean, they were throwing out guys that had hardly seen the field at all. You know, Noah Gray is out there running every single snap. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the practice squad receiver that they called up after Juju and Hardman went down that was out there and, and he's just out there doing it. And also though, that defense stepped up in a big way. They had a bunch of injuries to their secondary. I think all four members of their secondary that finished that game were rookies, which is insane. And they had three pass breakups in the fourth quarter, including an interception uh, Joe Burrow for all of his magic, for all of his majesty in clutch situations. I'm a huge Joe Burrow fan. He had three shots to win that game and he couldn't do it against that defense. Like the Kansas city defense showed up when they had to show up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that, that secondary, which, you know, the rookies, I, I believe were Brian cook, Jalen Watson, Trent McDuffie and Joshua Williams, which Wow. They they traded right. away a cornerback partway through the season because they were like, yeah, we love these rookies. You've got no idea how much we love these rookies. And they were right. They should. Incredible rookies. Um, but yeah, I mean, they uh, they did... Uh, a, Brian Cook, by the way, part of the same secondary as uh, as Kobe Bryant and Sauce Gardner. Um, that Cincinnati team was pretty stacked, huh? That's insane. But- <laughs> that Cincinnati mayor must have been celebrating them too, huh? <laughs> But uh, that's that's the quote of the year from Travis Kelsey. Is, <laughs> now, what you guys need to do is call the mayor of the town that you went to school in a jabroni on air. <laughs> you guys got to send Shut it right Shut your now. mouth and know your role, you jabroni. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a huge credit to Spagnolo, which um, I am so curious about what they're going to do against the Eagles because their preferred style, much like the 49ers, their preferred style of defense does not match up well against running quarterbacks because of how often they like safeties to be high up. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, Spagnuolo is a really smart coordinator. He's won a couple of rings already. Um, the the defense stepping up in a, in a huge way, obviously it was critical, right? It was such a close game that if the defense didn't have, you know, as incredible performances as they did, this wouldn't have, you know, been a, a part of the conversation. But yeah, I mean, the, the Chiefs injuries were extraordinary, both on offense and defense, especially at those skill positions, you know, losing their nickel corner and throwing Joshua Williams in, who, by the way, in their week 13 matchup, when the Bengals and, and Chiefs played each other, not week 13, but when they played each other last, Bengals and Chiefs, might've been week 13, Joshua Williams was targeted for 76 yards. I mean, he was picked on by Joe Burrow mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the Bengals wanted to do it again. The Chiefs knew they wanted to do it again and they gave him a little bit of help. But they also were like, look, you know, we might be down uh, a corner or two. We might be down a corner and a safety. 
but you're down three offensive linemen, and that we're going to make that a bigger problem for you than this corner is for us because we know our well, corner. Chris is good. Jones went crazy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. From from every position, from the nose tackle position, under tackle position, defensive end position. Oh my gosh! And they knew because I remember a couple of years ago when the Chiefs were like, you know, Chris Jones is so good at football, which is true. So good at football, so athletic, so you know this or that that we're going to move him from defensive tackle to defensive end for a good chunk. And it didn't work out, right? He he was only really good instead of great, you know, that year. And they moved him back to defensive tackle after the season. It was a great decision. But in this game, you know, they were like, look, we learned the lessons we needed to learn. And the lesson was not don't play Chris Jones at defensive end. It's find him matchups that work best for him. And in this game, the Bengals did not have their right tackle, their left tackle, or I believe their right guard, right? Because that was when Max Sharping was playing because Cordell Wilson right. was the left guard. Um and and you know they knew that if they if they played Chris Jones where Chris Jones traditionally lines up, they'd be able to double team him and maybe put a tight end on the the outside linebacker defensive end. Which I mean that's Frank Clark. That's not great, but it's better than Chris Jones, right? Um, and and you know the Eagles or the the, the Chiefs were like, no, we're, he's not going to get double teamed. We're going to solve that problem too. And they pushed him outside, and he got the, you know the game winning sack right with forty one seconds left. Um, the it's a huge credit to Joe Burrow for being able to having the pocket awareness and pocket management all season with as bad of an offensive line they did before the injuries uh, to be able to turn from, I think he was the most sacked quarterback through three weeks into, into one of the least uh, sacked quarterbacks by league's end. Um, but this game, it was just too much as the injuries piled up and there were four sacks in the, in the first half and then no sacks in the second half until that 41 second mark. And so the Bengals were responding. They understood the magnitude of the problem that they had with that offensive line and facing that defensive line. They knew what the issue was. They were responding. They were doing the things that they could do best, whether it was a short passing game or great pocket management. And the chiefs figured that out too. Right. And, and it was just a, a fantastic defensive performance knowing that ball is almost certainly going to go to whichever outside receiver Joe Burrow has his eyes on, whether that's Jamar Chase or T. Higgins, and we're going to figure out who that is and double-team them the whole time. He's going to win a couple of them, but he's not going to win all of them, right? Which That's where one of the picks came from, right? A Brian Cook-tipped uh, pass to, I want to say, Jalen Watson, who, does he have like three picks in three playoff or something crazy like that? Or, no, the Chiefs were the one seed, so two picks in two playoff games. Um, but yeah, just like absolutely... Uh, phenomenal performance from the individual defensive players and from the defensive coordinator to figure out exactly how the Bengals were going to continue to adjust their game plan as their offense got shut down and adjusting to those adjustments in quick enough fashion to be able to pull out the win. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, these, these conversations tend to revolve around the quarterbacks, but the chiefs aren't in the super bowl without a complete team effort. The Eagles aren't in the super bowl without a complete team effort. So I, I we've feel got like our it's, team. Been, it's been a while actually since we've seen both teams enter the Super Bowl on the backs of strength from both units, right? True, true. Yeah, a lot of times you have uh, Super Bowl contenders where it's like their bread is buttered on one side, and uh, with these teams, you you really have both. And and so we've got our matchup. The Chiefs immediately opened as a half point favorite on most books, and within the first two hours. Money moved the line as far as the Eagles minus three. Now, last I saw, it is settled at Philly minus two or minus two and a half. Mahomes obviously battled through that ankle injury heroically in that game. And Loki, I think that is a massive notch in his belt from a legacy perspective. Like, I think we can look back on this win and rank it just about as high as any that he's had. But my question to you is, 
if you had to make a $10,000 bet right now on the winner of this game, who are you picking and why? Man, um, you, you say that as if I'm staking $10,000, but the question is, is worded as if I'm gifted a $10,000 betting credit. So I'm just going to do that. So I feel no, less no, 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 man. I feel you less gotta, you gotta pull, you gotta pull from assets to make this. This is a stressful bet. This is a stressful is, bet. You're, you're liquidating. You, you're liquidating. Absolutely. For this. Absolutely. You're doing a, you're doing a HELOC. You're, you're selling oh, your Bitcoin. No, you're doing God. whatever you got to do to make through. this $10,000. Who you taking? I just went through a HELOC, man. I never want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, it's, it's secured on, on my home, the place where yep. I live and am sheltered. Uh, yes. How do you go away from the greatest quarterback you've ever seen? I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I have to go with the Chiefs. I understand the money moved in the Eagles' direction. I understand they have a much more complete team that's got an ability to beat you in a variety of ways. But the thing is, the difference between one and two sometimes is not that big. And sometimes it's massive. And I think here the difference between the best quarterback in the NFL, Patrick Mahomes, and the second best quarterback in the NFL, which is not Jalen Hurts. It might be Joe Burrow. It might be Josh Allen. I don't know. Um, is huge. I think there's just a there's, it's Patrick Mahomes in his own tier, and then a tier of just emptiness, and then the next tier of players. We're all elite, yep. right? Yep. Um, and 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 his ability to solve problems on presumably a somewhat healthier ankle, at least I hope. Um, that's that's crazy to me, right? Because because again, if if offense is about solving problems that the defense creates, and the Eagles do it by having a variety of attacks. And the Chiefs do it by having the greatest quarterback I've ever seen, the greatest problem solver in the history of the NFL. I'm going to go with the guy that solves problems for a living instead of the one that has the tools to solve all the problems. I, I, I think Jalen Hurts is a phenomenal quarterback, smart guy, great leader, incredible leader. In fact, when I was at the Senior Bowl the year he was coming out of college, um, remember, he had to transfer to Oklahoma because he essentially gotten benched at Alabama for, was it Tua? Yeah, it was Tua. Yep. Um, yep. You know, and Nick Saban would refuse to name someone a starter, even though he clearly had, had figured out a starter. Um, when I was at the, in Mobile, Alabama, I I had never had this happen to me. When I was walking the streets of Mobile, people noticing I was there for the Senior Bowl and talking to me about Jalen Hurts and how great of a dude he was. This is yeah. not the only time an Alabaman had been to the Senior Bowl. So it was like, it, I've been there for years and years, and this is the first time people pulled me aside and was like, this Jalen Hurts guy is so great. Like he's, he is a good person. He's great in the community that anybody you talk to on the team is going to talk about. He's the greatest leader they've ever seen. Like he's incredible. And that's exactly the impact that he had on the chiefs. I'm not knocking him. Right. But Mahomes ability to get out right of, of, of problems. Mahomes ability to, to create new angles and understandings of the very sport we watch. I can't get past that. My $10,000 is going on the Chiefs. You know, I I lean that way too. Um You can't lean. You got to you got to say with your chest. Your house is on the line. It is. Uh so I I have a lot of money on the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. So Your house uh, is on the line. My my my, <laughs> my my money is staked. So it I'm I'm encouraged to hear someone who knows more about football than I do agree with me. And and, and it, it does come down to the combination of Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, ultimately. Will I be shocked if the Eagles win this game? Not at all. I think there are a lot of ways that the Eagles win this game. 
I think Kansas City is going to have to be able to run the football. I think the Eagles are too good on defense to be completely one-dimensional. I don't care how good Patrick Mahomes is. You also need the supporting cast to ball out. You know, the the big knock against Patrick Mahomes' legacy is that blowout Super Bowl loss to the Buccaneers. I thought that was one of the best games he's ever played. I think they scored nine points in that game. His throw that got dropped by oh, uh, Daryl Williams in the end zone, where he's like on the 40-yard line, <laughs> horizontal, being sacked by two guys, and he threw it 45 yards on a freaking dime and hit Williams in the face mask, right? And they had seven drops in that game, and there was a lot going on. I mean, maybe they're coasting high on being the reigning champions. Andy Reid's uh, son, the night or two right. before the Super Bowl, yeah, Britt, I think, had yeah. – had, yeah, had a drunk driving incident that I think claimed a life. I cannot imagine trying to come up with a Super Bowl winning game plan um, while dealing with that. You know, there was a lot going on in that game. Regardless, that was not a three touchdown loss from a talent perspective. Oh, yeah. Patrick or, Mahomes, or from a performance perspective, just comparing the quarterbacks for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought Patrick Mahomes played his ass off in that game. Yeah. And like I said, seven drops seven drops in one game and i mean it was like they had like nine more penalties than the buccaneers had in that game i mean it was just it was ugly all the way around so i i bring it up to say that yes i think the most important factor in this game is the fact that you have maybe the best football player who's ever lived playing in it absolutely that is not an unassailable mountaintop like you can oh, scale that yeah. And, and, and he, so he has lost the rest games, of the team. That's true. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the rest of the team, he's not going to be at full strength. I mean, you got to think that two weeks of rest and recovery uh, and treatment is going to help him be more mobile in this game. He'll have to be uh, the Eagles defense is just better than the Bengals defense, but the rest of the guys are going to have to show out. Chris Jones is going to have to be every bit as good as he was the, that secondary is going to have to be every bit as good as they were against the Bengals and the pass catchers are going to have to make some plays. And I think they're going to have to score a fair amount of points and they're going to have to do it with not a lot of time. I think this is a game where the chiefs maybe only see 10 or 11 possessions instead of 13 or 14, which means they're going to have to be really efficient with that because the Eagles are going to get their points. I don't, I don't really see a scenario where the Eagles don't score 24 points in this game. And three touchdowns and a field goal on 10 or 11 drives. That's pretty par for the course. Uh, that's even over par for, for the Eagles. And so Chiefs are going to have to score. They're going to have to score four touchdowns to win this game. They're not going to have a ton of chances to do it. So I uh, I do see, you know, a, a very real look. The, the Eagles aren't favorites by accident. You know, like this is this is definitely a case where the sharps set the, you know, the books set the line slightly in favor of the chiefs half a point right off the bat, but the money has moved it. And you watch those two games. It's easy to see why you have one team that just bullies their way to a massive victory. And the other that needed a lot to go right in the final minute in order for them to win. So I, I get that. I do think the chiefs win this game, but I won't be surprised if the Eagles do, if the Eagles win this game, how do you think they will have done it? Um, 
like I said, I think that the, the game revolves around how well Spagnolo can adapt his preferred defense to one that can more adequately take on um, what the Eagles do, right? Because he does like to play those safeties pretty high. He does like a cover two shell, not in the same way that we've seen a lot of these cover two, cover four, you know, Vic Fangio style teams do, but in a way that that brings the safety out of the box and prioritizes the pass. And that's going to be really difficult against a team that's actually efficient running the ball. Most teams run the ball because it's optimal to take some less efficient plays for the purposes of the whole game plan. The Eagles run the ball because it gets them points. Um, and, and that's pretty hard in the NFL, and it's difficult to rebuild your defense to be able to stop that sort of thing. So I think it's going to revolve around that, and I think because of that potential schematic weak point, um, it's, I think that you're right, that the Eagles could maybe even get up to two and a half points a drive, which if they do that, that is, that is an elite offensive performance. It's difficult to beat two and a half points a drive. Um, and if, yeah, and so if, if they get there, right? Uh, then it's going to be incumbent upon the Chiefs, who they don't average two and a half. No one does. It's so hard to get there, right? I think they average 2.4, and I think that leads the NFL. Um, it, it's it, They're going to have to overcome that with uh, with not just a great offensive performance, but they're going to have to, you know, maybe pay the piper on that Tyree kill trade. Like you said, you know, they don't have the skill core that they used to have. It's Travis Kelsey and a bunch of dudes, right? They're yep. running the ball better than they did before with Isaiah Pacheco and Jeremy McKinnon, but it is still... Travis Kelsey and a bunch of dudes. Um, the way that they replaced Tyreek Hill, I thought was fairly clever, not just getting an assemblage of receivers that have the ability to play different roles. I think, the, for example, the impact that Marquez Valdez-Scantling has on that offense is less about the balls he catches and more how he changes the geometry of the defense with his deep speed. But um, the way that they really replaced him is by producing a better offensive line. This is the best offensive line that Mahomes has had heading into a Super Bowl, we can see that not in pressure rate, but in things like pass rush win rate, where the Chiefs are number one in the NFL by a significant margin, and in time to throw. This is the longest time to throw that Patrick Mahomes has ever had or ever takes advantage of. He's always going to take a league average pressure rate because he invites pressure. That's what he does. And he does that because inviting pressure gives more time for receivers to get open, That's which right. he has needed to do this year because the receiving core is not as good. And and so he has needed to hold on to the ball a little bit longer to allow players like Justin Watson, who, you know, speaking of Brady, was was taken off of basically the Bucks practice squad. Um, now, he, he did eventually make the Bucks roster and then he hit free agency. But functionally, that's where he spent most of his NFL career, the Bucks practice squad. That Justin Watson. Then you've got Juju Smith-Schuster, basically a cast off from Pittsburgh. Then you've got Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who couldn't, you know, find a way to side with the Green Bay Packers, despite the fact that they just did not have receivers at the time, right? He's going to have to find all of those guys, plus the guys that we can't even remember the names of, right? Plus rookie Sky Moore, who's uh, up until last week, the story of Sky Moore on the Chiefs was disappointment, right? It was yep. you would, fumbled punt returns. Yeah, three fumbles, three muffs on punt returns and just no offensive performance otherwise. I will say he had that huge punt return. I remember yes. thinking, man, I would rather be anywhere else on the planet than standing where Sky Moore is right now, fielding a punt in a tied AFC championship game on his own 20 yard line. And yeah. he responded with the longest punt return of the year. He has been a disappointment as a rookie for sure, but I got to give flowers. Oh, where no, absolutely. Due Sky Moore return. Uh, had the lowest yards per punt return in the NFL heading into the game and three fumbles and three muffs. Harrison Butker ranked 32nd in field goal percentage heading into the game, and both of them turned into performances of their career. 
absolutely yep. and were critical in the way, like absolutely critical in the win, right? Because if Sky Moore doesn't return that that final punt, as long as he did, I don't know that the Chiefs set up the right kick for Harrison Bucker. That was totally agree. Phenomenal. So, yep. but I mean, the, and, and, but that's the thing is that they're going to need those players who are disappointments either this year or in previous years for the franchises that they were associated with to step up in a big way and prove all those people wrong, which is always a fun story. But the reason it's a fun story is because it doesn't happen all the time. It, that's like, right. Most of the time, the NFL is right and you're bad at football. And so <laughs> it's like you, you have to prove them wrong in a way that beats the odds. And the benefit is that you've got Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes to kind of help you along the way. But like you pointed out, last time Patrick Mahomes, you know, didn't have that with him. And, and they dropped the ball seven. So he's going to need these players to step up because that offensive line, maybe it's better than ever, but those receivers still have to catch those balls, right? Isaiah Pacheco still has to play out of his mind. And, and the Eagles know who Travis Kelsey is. They know maybe better than any other non-conference team in the world who Travis Kelsey is, right? <laughs> I, I heard a rumor. I heard a rumor <laughs> yeah. that they have his brother on their team. Yeah, on the payroll. Oh, the gall. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask you this. I mean, the, the strengths of these teams are, are obvious and I really appreciate you humoring us in, in talking in depth about those, but Seahawks fan to Seahawks fan, is there in your mind, <laughs> is there a blueprint for reaching the Super Bowl that has been established right now, like time stamped in the last few years of the NFL? And if so, is Seattle on the right track for entering their name in the next couple of years towards being one of those contenders? Yeah, I, I think that Seattle does have a pathway. Obviously, they're going to have to answer a lot of questions like in free agency, right? Which, I mean, they've got a lot of effective cap space, which is nice, um, you know, which is, you know, subtracting the expected uh, cap cost of the draft pool as well as, you know, the minimum to get up to 51 players and all that. But right. they're going to have to make sure, you know, they have to make a decision on Geno Smith. I'm sure that most Seahawks fans in the front office are aligned that, yeah, get him back. But, you know, they still have to make a decision. They still have to evaluate whether or not Juno Smith was a flash in the pan or whether or not, you know, the fact that he kind of stumbled kind of late in the stretch um, or was a, you know, one one year, whatever. They're going to have to make a decision and determine what the real Geno Smith provides and, and if he's going to be available for the next year or if not. Right. So that's going to be part of it. But I think that. One of the best draft classes I've seen in a while, right? It reminds me of the 2017 New Orleans Saints draft. I mean, the number of starters that were generated from it from the get-go is even bigger than that 2017 draft. It remains to be seen whether or not they can reach the heights of someone like an Alvin Kamara or a, or a Marcus Williams, right? But um, you know, having you know Tariq Woolen, who I don't know, was he defensive rookie of the year? I know he was on the ballot. He's got second best odds, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, who's who's first? Sauce. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, he's yeah, Sauce is winning it. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant and Abraham Lucas and the other tackle whose name I can't even remember and Kenneth Walker, like that's incredible, right? To to get that from one draft class. You're not gonna get that next year. That's just not gonna happen. It never happens. But um I think Seattle is a, a destination. Um, in part because, you know, Arizona's a mess, Los Angeles is on the way out and the 49ers, as weird as it is, say have a quarterback problem. I think Jimmy Ward said it, that they have a quarterback problem, right? Because Jimmy Garoppolo is not on the under contract. Trey Lance is bad, and Brock Purdy's hurt. I guess Trey Lance is also hurt, but I think the primary issue is that he's bad. Um, you know, so, so you know, like, the, how you resolve, like... <laughs> <laughs> 
aside from that, the of course. in Chicago didn't sell you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, like I, I, I don't have the world's greatest faith in Brock Purdy. So to me, that means that the division is is pretty wide open, and that Seattle has the pieces in place to be successful there, right? Um, they're going to have to figure out edge rush. They're going to have to figure out kind of whether or not they want somebody a little bit better than Puna Ford, who I think is a phenomenal player. I think that he's great, but you just need some more interior help, and he can't be the best player on the defensive line. Um, you know, I, I think that you take a look at kind of what they're doing up front defensively, and you hope that they can figure out a plan to do that, whether um, that involves something in free agency, whether that involves, you know, even more investments in draft picks. You know, I don't know how confident Seattle fans are like in Darrell Taylor or whoever else they have on the edge. But I mean, it, it seems like that's a problem that needs to be solved, but in the back end, they've got the secondary, they've got Jordan Brooks at linebacker. They've got a lot of pieces in place in the back end for that defense to get a lot better than it was. Um, I don't know. It, it, on paper, it's a, it's a fairly talented defense. Sometimes it just doesn't translate. Um, I think part of it's just, you know, you get up and down play from, from rookies, but um having a defensive line that does more than what have happened last year, I think is going to be a big part of it. You get Jamal Adams back next year, right? I'm pretty confident yep. that he's still under. Yeah. Yep. So you got him and Quandre Diggs paired together. I mean, that's great. Um, so Seattle has the, the pieces defensively to get it together. They've got, I, I, so I don't know if he's the most underrated receiver in the NFL, but he's up there. Tyler Lockett. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know he's great i know that like the 538 measure has him is like absurdly good like he's a top five receiver for them which you know sure why not uh and then you've got like dk metcalf who is anything but an afterthought right i mean that, that's like a pretty good group to have um so i think that you know they're close to being in a spot where you can say hey they've got a way to solve a lot of problems right because they can throw it um deep intermediate or short to that receiving group they've got uh an emerging a better offensive line than yeah, we've been talking about how bad the Seattle offensive line has been for years, and now it's actually you know kind of on the up and up, right? You've got potentially, if you know the the free agency stuff resolves itself, a, a quarterback that you can rely on at least in the short term, um, and a defense that's full of young talent. I that's that's really cool. I, that feels like you've got you know the ability to be um, you know a division I don't know favorite next year, but division relevant next year and and possibly you know the year after that after having established themselves being the division favorite in in 2025 i think that that's uh, well on the table um the caps the cap situation is is so healthy um i mean it, it took a lot of doing following kind of you know 2015 2016 2017 to get that cap situation that healthy but the cap situation is so healthy that you can make all of the moves that you know, you, you need to be able to make. But I didn't even mention the tight end. No offense. That's great. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. like that's, you know, you've got a lot of pieces, right? Uh, and so um, you've got the flexibility, the latitude, the draft picks for sure, um, to be able to make sure that you approach offseason acquisition in the correct way. I mean, it sounds like they're going to lose Sean Desai, defensive consultant, and that's going to hurt a little bit. But hey, Chris Richard just became available. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I, I, there's a number of dominoes that need to fall, of course, for Seattle to go from being projected by many to being one of the three worst teams, in the NFL going into this year to competing for a Super Bowl. Now they cleared a lot of those hurdles this year by nailing the draft class. I mean, you said it, 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 it harkens back to that first stretch of drafts that John Schneider had when he first showed up 2010 through 2012, where Seattle was not only nailing their high picks, 
but they were just finding gems in the middle and late rounds, uh, day two and day three guys who are all of a sudden playing like borderline all pros. Uh, but there's think, a long way to go. I think the I greatest mean, accomplishment of the Brandon Browner pick was not that he was a good player, which he was, which we don't have to talk about his off field, but he was a great player, right? Um, but that he ruined the draft classes for so many subsequent teams trying to find yes, six did. more corners. Yes, he did. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, so, it, it's so true. And I mean, you know, we've talked about that on the show a fair amount is that, you know, what Seattle did in the early 2010s with their defenses, specifically with their secondary, created a blueprint that the rest of the NFL caught up to. And all of a sudden, having corners who are every bit as big as the receivers they were covering uh, became almost the norm. And it was such an outlier thing when they did it. But yeah, the, the standard you know, cornerback size was like 5'10 before like yeah. 2011, which like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Pete Carroll is the fulcrum upon which all of yeah. that tilted. Yeah. Because he built a defense back to front with big guys. That was a big, big secondary. And and, and so, you know, I, I talked a little bit ago about the dominoes that all have to fall in, in the right way for Seattle to really join this upper echelon of contending teams. The biggest one, of course, you mentioned it, it's Geno Smith. And this is not a new question, but I want to frame it a little differently to you. Do you think that Seattle extends Geno? And if so... Does that preclude them from drafting a quarterback at number five? Um, so first of all, uh, at number five, probably I'd be kind of weird to draft Will Levis or something like that. Who would be probably the quarterback that you draft. Maybe an Anthony Richardson. I feel like he's got the kind of chaos that Pete Carroll appreciates. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I feel I, like Richardson's the perfect project quarterback if you're going to sit a guy. Right, yeah, if you're going to sit too. a guy for a while, yeah. Um, you know, that that's, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think that it probably does but i don't think it precludes you from drafting a second third or fourth round quarterback for sure mm -hmm. and there are some names in this class that, that are worth taking a look at right i mean um hendon hooker for example is the yeah. projected second third round guy so um you know th there are there are a pot or even anthony i mean anthony richardson might not be a first round quarterback we don't have to like pretend that he's absolutely a lock to make it in the first round um so you know th there's a possibility i i don't know that i would do that at five um but you know the the Seahawks have a little bit of draft capital to play around with. Maybe they trade down and use one of the one of the picks that they acquire in a trade down sure. quarterback. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I think that I don't know. You take a look at some of these teams that are doing so well, and it's just like when did they draft the quarterback? Well, when they had a franchise guy on the roster. You take a look at Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes. They were both drafted when the quarterback that took them to the playoffs was on the on the roster, right? Like, you know, you like it's it's so totally doable and it's so weird that you kind of like obviously you have to manage your locker room when something like that happens, like the Aaron Rodgers thing. You don't want, you know, uh, a, a, an Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love situation where Aaron Rodgers ends up going off the deep end in a lot of ways, not just in the locker room. But like you don't want your star quarterback calling out your front office. So you need to you need to manage that in some way. Right. Yes. But I think that absolutely. I mean. I don't think any like it didn't work out for Washington necessarily, but I don't think anyone would think that Washington in hindsight was wrong to draft Kirk Cousins the same year they drafted Robert Griffin. That turned out to be inspired, right? And so, um, you know, a lot of these teams that have succeeded, right? The 49ers just got to the playoffs with Brock Purdy, a guy that they drafted. Like, they drafted Trey Lance, and then they were like, you always got to get a quarterback, and they drafted Brock Purdy. Again, not like a significant investment or anything like sure. that. but. Man, I, 
these these teams have generally gotten there with quarterbacks that were not the plan when they drafted. And so I think you should be comfortable, you know, like you 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 want your one one to be Joe Burrow and you don't have to deal with and that's fine. Right. But like if you get a franchise guy, you're going to want a guy that can be a starter behind him. And and I think that um, it's going to be hard to sign that guy in free agency if you sign your starter in free agency as well. But I, I think that you should absolutely be open to the possibility of drafting a guy. Again, I don't know that that necessarily comes in the first round. If they do do that in the first round, I would not be opposed to it. I wouldn't say Seattle made the wrong move here. I think it would make sense. But I, I think that given the nature of this quarterback draft class, they do have the capacity to wait until the second or third round to to grab a quarterback, and I would applaud them for doing it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of lean that way too. I, I don't think you need to take your big swing on the next quarterback. I... If Seattle can get Miles Murphy, I think just that's so much more tempting to me. (laughs) Totally, just just because you have a chance to get a real difference maker on defense. Which let let's be honest, the quarterback is not the reason Seattle didn't go further in in this uh, you know in in this season. It it was their defense. They just they just lack the dudes to be a Super Bowl quality team, and it's and it's mostly up front and. And I think you've got opportunity to get someone that is a real difference maker with that number five pick. Even if you trade down, you know, a, a popular trade partner is the Panthers moving up from nine uh, to go get their quarterback. There's still going to be players there. Um, the Texas Tech kid, the Clemson kid available there towards the back end of the the top 10 where, you know, you've got I a chance Clemson to get kid, honestly. I mean, they, they could both slot right yeah, into the right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm with it. I, I just, the more that I look now that we have like the fully encapsulated Gino experience for a whole season to look at, he was, he was a top six quarterback in the NFL this year. And am I projecting him to be that moving forward? No, not necessarily, but we know that it's in his range of outcomes now, you know, I mean, he was, First in completion percentage, fourth in touchdowns. He did it with a high average depth of target. He can run. He does so many things. He's not afraid of the tight window Which, throw. Which, like, just as a as a quick note, this was not the Geno Smith we saw at West Virginia or with the Jets. He was not a deep passer. He was not completing deep passes, and he didn't really love to run the ball either. His reformulation mm-hmm. as a quarterback, extraordinary. Huge credit to to the offensive coaching staff with Seattle. Well, it, it is absolutely a huge credit to Shane Waldron and, and, and his staff. Also, it's a reflection and Smith has been very open about this. It's a reflection of a decade spent taking backup quarterback role very seriously. Very seriously. Really, really being ready. And I think it's easy to overlook just how difficult that is knowing every week you're not going to get the reps with the ones. You're mostly going to be carrying a clipboard and thrown to the scout team and listening to the head coach talk to the starter during film sessions and all of that stuff. And to remain so sharp and to rework his body uh, to get bigger and faster uh, over those 10 years is, is really an amazing thing. And then just to have the fucking balls, just the watermelons oh, yeah. in the sack to go out there and say, I got one shot at this thing to prove that I am that guy and, and to just do it 
and saying all of the right things. You know, I, I put so much stock into quotes from quarterbacks, not so much from other players. Cause honestly, I don't, I kind of want my wide receiver to be a little bit of a diva. Like I, I want those guys demanding the ball and pissed mm-hmm. off if they're not getting in all this stuff, but quarterback, I need you to be the CEO. And Gino has had bars after every game, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like he has just said the right thing. He's an ace. You know, it's what makes me love Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts so much. Like they just say the right things. They do the right things as a GM and a head coach. You don't have to worry about the 2 a.m. text or the tweet that gets fired off where it's like, oh, shit. Now we got to be answering a bunch of questions about whether he's happy or or whatnot. You know, I, I really hope that they bring Geno back and that they focus hard on defense and the interior of the offensive line in this draft and, and with free agency. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's been, it's been a pleasure to watch because I, I think that the NFL doesn't really have enough of these stories. Like we were just talking about the Tom Brady story and the Brock Purdy story. And that's great. But the reason that they're stories is because they're rare. Um, but I think the, like a late round pick becoming a very good player is a fun story a guy who was a high round pick that organizations had invested in and attempted to develop and didn't work out and then becoming somebody that's even more rare, right? Because again, like I said earlier, NFL teams aren't usually wrong when they say you're bad at football. Usually you're just Mm -hmm. bad. Right. And so for, for multiple NFL teams to be just incorrect about that, about somebody or, you know, late to the party, maybe they were right at the time, but um, that, that is so cool because um it very much covering you know the league you know week in week out year in year out it it feels as if there is kind of a drudgery you know like it's not like college football where a guy can just show up he's a it's the second time that he's transferred he's a walk-on and now you know he's our starting quarterback and he absolutely fucking rules right that doesn't happen all that much in the nfl And, and and it becomes kind of a drudgery to just say you know, yeah, you know, these are the top receivers in the league. We'll see what the rookies provide, right? It, it, it's not like there's much reorientation of these kinds of player rankings or the impact that they have on the rosters that they're on, except for like the occasional free agency bust, right? There's not a ton of free agency super fines like you do with Geno Smith. So it's really cool that a player can reclaim their career and rewrite the narrative of, of who they were as a player because Geno Smith, before the season, people didn't even realize he was on rosters, right? People didn't realize yep. that he played for both New York teams. Right. Like, like it's, it, it's, I think he know. played for all three New York teams. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like it's just, you know, like once, once you're a first round bust, that's it. You're gone by. Right. And, and for him to kind of forcefully reinsert himself into the conversation, um, has been really cool. And it's, it's a huge credit to him. It's a huge credit to Shane Waldron and his staff. Um, also like football players re orienting their play style is also very rare and for one to become yes. more successful doing that is fan position switches are more common than than players re- changing their playing style and being successful like the the ones that i can remember um include at the, at the miami running back who towards acl right before the draft became a denver broncos um running back willis mcgahey he changed his running style was a really effective running back as a result chris johnson same thing with the arizona cardinals changed Le'Veon bell style. did that too he was, he was kind of a compiler in michigan state and he became super shifty in the nfl yeah great receiver lost like 30 pounds to do it um and, and like these are so notable to me because ben roth same team ben roethlisberger became you know a short passing well kind of a compiler right but you know an effective quarterback when he kind of lost his ability to be a deep ball thrower and I, that just stuck out to me because 
Philip Rivers never did that, right? You know, he he changed teams, but he never changed his playing style. Matt Ryan changed teams, never played it, changed his playing style. Tom Brady kind of never changes his playing style. He'll change the offense that he's in, right? And he'll adapt to the offense, but ultimately his playing style has been the same for 23 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, players don't change their playing styles. Geno Smith changed his playing style. I thought that was really cool. Um, so huge credit to kind of getting to the point where he needs to be to maximize the tools he had around him, knowing that like, hey, if the first down's there for me, I'm going to get it however I need to get it, whether it's throwing deep, whether it's running, whether it's throwing short, I don't know. But I'm going to get it. I'm going to get that first down, right? I think that that's, uh, you know, a huge credit to him. And it's so difficult to, it's so hard for anybody in Geno Smith's situation to focus for as long as he did. Anybody. Uh, yes. if, if you become, if you're the starter and you become the backup quarterback and now no one in the building is talking to you, not because they don't like you or they want to ignore you, but because they were talking to you before, cause you were the starting quarterback and they had starting quarterback things to tell you, right? Like exactly. No yes. Talking to you. <laughs> it's the human, el- it's the human element of this that almost never gets talked about, but these, these it's guys, so hard. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're living on a razor's edge. There's a thousand dudes every year ready to take their job. And, and teams looking for an excuse to take, to give them your job and to continually be as nails as you need to be to stick around the NFL, forget as a starter, but then to become a starter that late in your career and then yeah. to thrive in that role. It, yeah. it really is an amazing thing that Geno Smith did this year. Yeah. It's so cool. And and you mentioned like the, the mentality that he has and the comfort the organization can have with him as a franchise quarterback or face of the franchise, not to have to answer questions. I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of the kind of swagger that somebody like a Baker Mayfield provides, but when things totally. go south, like, man, is he not the guy that you want up there, right? And, you know, that's something I kind of learned late, and maybe it's particular to him, right? But, you know, it's 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 tough, right? We saw what happened with Zach Wilson. I mean, again, he was not already a good quarterback before, you know, he lost the locker room. He was playing poor football when that had happened. Yep. But, I mean, I think that's one reason that the Sam Darnold played really well for the Carolina Panthers this year after being rejected by the Jets organization, whereas Zach Wilson, I'm not confident, has that outcome for him in his future, right? Because, he, and he's young, he could change, right? But he did not seem particularly wired to play quarterback as a leader, play quarterback as a position player, right? Yep. And Sam Darnold was always a quarterback. I, I never really thought much of Sam Darnold as a football player. I didn't love him as a draft pick, I, whatever, right? But he's wired to play quarterback as a quarterback. And I think that the reason that he emerged in Carolina, and he's hitting free agency, who knows what happens with him. But if you take a look at how, nobody was watching the Panthers at the final stretch of the season when Steve Wilkes took over. But if you watch how Sam Darnold played with Steve Wilkes as the interim head coach, he was playing lights out. Those statistics. Oh, we saw it. They kicked our ass. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but like you take a look at those statistics, you mentioned that Geno Smith was like, you know, uh, sixth in completion percentage, despite having a deep passing uh, depth of target, I think, was it fourth in completion percentage over expected? He was really high in expected points. You take a look at the span of time that Sam Darnold started. He was one of the league leaders in all of those statistics. Yep. It was incredible. Yep. Um, and and I think it's because he had the kind of focus that Geno Smith needed to have for 10 fucking years. It's um, I, I couldn't do it. I know that. But he needed to have the focus seeing Baker Mayfield uh, named the starter and having a quarterback drafted ahead or drafted to replace him in uh, Matt Corral. Um and uh, and PJ Walker playing ahead of him, like three right. quarterbacks basically ahead of you. And the only reason Matt Corral wasn't ahead of you earlier is because he got injured, right? 
seeing those guys all take your job after you kind of flamed out or whatever with two organizations and then returning to starting lineup, not having Christian McCaffrey and deciding, screw it, I'm going to throw to DJ Moore and Donta Foreman. That's it. I'm good. <laughs> and balling it. Like, it's, it's hard to find those guys. And that's the reason we see the same backup quarterbacks kind of rotate around the NFL. Absolutely. Why, why you've got your clipboard Jesuses, why you've got Chase Daniel, why you've got... Because they know how to be a backup quarterback, stay focused, stay ready, stay relevant, and help the team when they're not playing and help the team when they are playing. That's really I hard. mean, Chase Daniel has won two playoff games. You know what I mean? Like he beat, he beat the Browns when Mahomes got hurt a couple years ago. He, he secured that win against the Jaguars uh, when Mahomes got hurt this year. I mean, it's absolutely right. Like it's a, yeah. it's a good, totally underrated aspect of the NFL experiences staying ready when you haven't been called upon for months on end, sometimes years on end. Listen, Arif, it is so clear that you and I could do this for the next four hours. <laughs> however, however, we got to sleep, man. All right. I appreciate all of the time you've given us. We were absolutely stoked to have you on to talk about all this. Before we get out of here, where can people find more of you? Yeah, so uh, the only social that I use is Twitter, which I don't know if that's a mistake or not. Um, but you can find that at Arifasan NFL, A-R-I-F-H-S-A-N, NFL. Or you can find my work over at Pro Football Network, profootballnetwork.com slash author slash Ahasan. Just published a piece on Tom Brady's legacy, one that is a lot less of a hagiography than I think a lot of the pieces that were just published today. <laughs> Yeah, well, I uh, look forward to it being completely irrelevant when he signs with the Raiders in a month. But, <laughs> but in the meantime, make sure you're reading that article. No, I think I think this this time's for good yeah, with, with Tom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and for those of you listening, Arif is positively one of my top followers on Twitter. So if you are on the Bird app, make sure you're following him as well. As for us, you can find Mike and I on social media. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J A C S O N. Mike is taking a break from Twitter, but is normally found at, at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. Despite being on the air for just over a year, we've already got nearly 200 five-star ratings between the two platforms. That is not something Mike and I take for granted. Thank you to all of y'all for listening, for your continued support of the show. We know you've only got so much time for audiobooks, music, and podcasts. It's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh!